The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, February 20th, 2020. From Slate, is the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Headline, Washington Post. Roger Stone sentenced to 40 months for lying to Congress. Witness tampering amid turmoil between Justice Department and Trump on penalty. Stone's sentencing recommendation raised questions over whether the White House has interfered in Justice Department prosecutions. Questions. It raised questions about whether Trump interfered. Well, Trump says he's interfered. Barr said, don't interfere. Trump said, stop telling me not to interfere in between tweets that were interfering. I don't know about the questions about whether the White House has interfered. Now, 40 months is not insignificant, though less than before Trump definitely, definitely interfered. Stone's defense lawyer said this at sentencing. Roger Stone is a real person, not a media figure, not a political character, but a real person. That probably cut Roger Stone to the quick, what with his back tattoo of Nixon. He described Stone as a soon-to-be great-grandfather. He emphasized Stone has, quote, devoted himself to various causes, including veterans, animal welfare, and football players suffering from traumatic brain injuries, and has, quote, worked to bridge racial divides in this country. What? Okay, forget the racial divides. I mean, everyone knows Roger Stone is the MLK of anti-racism, just like MLK is the Gandhi of nonviolence. But football players suffering traumatic brain injuries? Why? Yes. In 2018, Stone took to the Daily Caller to criticize the NFL and lawyers for concussed players on the settlement they reached that could pay the players significantly. Stone uncorked this theory, quote, in fact, the NFL is probably happy to have players kneel during our national anthem because it distracts from their duplicitous strategy to have retired players die off or give up on trying to collect on the promises the NFL made when they settled the lawsuit against the multi-billion dollar league. Stone then posted on Instagram a Topps trading card of former Seattle Seahawk Cornell Webster, a fairly obscure former player, and Stone said the NFL needed to, quote, stop the racism and pay up. He then went on InfoWars, yes, Alex Jones InfoWars, we're in a regular segment, and said that Cornell Webster had been delivering pizzas to make ends meet. Contacted by BuzzFeed, Cornell Webster said he had no idea who Roger Stone is or why Roger Stone was Instagramming about him. And he also told BuzzFeed he has never delivered pizzas. He doesn't know where Roger Stone got that. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is Roger Stone's work on behalf of football players suffering from traumatic brain injuries. You know what? If it helps get me out of a prison sentence, maybe you could take all my comments saying Joe Biden wasn't involved in any corrupt Ukrainian schemes and use them to speak about the advocacy that I've done on behalf of orphans. I mean, Joe's parents passed away, right? I'd probably be better off not doing the crime in the first place or having the president of the United States harass my jury for woman on Twitter. Either way, The lesson is clear. Stop the racism. On the show today, I spiel about what Mike Bloomberg should have said. Uh, Not horse-faced lesbians. Yes, of course. Stipulated. But there's even more than that. But first, it was fight night in Vegas last night. As Michael Bloomberg was torn limb from limb and beaten with his still twitching appendages, a thought came to mind. 
how'd we get here? No, not specifically the chaotic evil billionaire being challenged by the lawful neutral billionaire who's trailing the chaotic good druid. No, I mean the very real chance of a democratic primary process that doesn't pick the actual democratic nominee. It is messy and one man has the diagnosis. His political scientist, Seth Maskett. He contributes to Vox 538 and his own Mischiefs of Faction blog. He is here to provide the backstory to the gory goings down in Vegas, but also the lack of resolution likely to attend all the voting for weeks to come. Last night in Las Vegas, the stage was filled with the current leading candidate, who's a self-styled outsider and a designated independent, identifies as an independent, never defined himself as a Democrat before the 2016 nominating race. Then in second place in national polls, a former mayor who also governed with the title independent. Before that, he governed as a Republican, and then it was registered as a Democrat. So trailing these two guys in all the national polls are a hodgepodge of actual Democrats, identifiable Democrats. And yet none of them is the likely nominee. Now, Bernie Sanders is most likely, but the experts and odd makers say that he's not the odds-on favorite. To get the nomination, he'll have to do something really hard, not just win primary after primary, but win by so much that he overcomes the collective delegate hall of his rivals. And if the Virgin Islands, as the last place to vote, does not deliver a winner, well then superdelegates, party insiders, will be brought in to provide hundreds of additional votes. It could get ugly. It seems chaotic. The parties once strong are now weak. This is the result. Seth Maskett, director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver, is here. He is the author of The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail, and How They Weaken Democracy. He blogs at Mischiefs of Faction for Vox. Thank you for joining me, Seth. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk with the last question first, because that seemed to be actually the one that got everyone least upset, but might be the one that's most important, and it actually goes to your work. The question is, well, what if there is something like a convention that's contested? What if, uh, should we go with the candidate who gets the plurality of delegates? And Bernie, who might seem to be that candidate, said yes. Everyone else said no. What does that tell you about your basic theses about the uh, party being in disarray? I mean, it's it's kind of interesting that people are actually, you know, suddenly taking this possibility of a contested convention seriously. I mean, it, it's sort of a perennial uh, fantasy scenario for um, for political journalists and political scientists. But, you know, the, I, I still think it's 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 not the most likely outcome, but it's probably more likely for that to happen than it has been in more than half a century. So people are at least thinking it through and gaming out the you know, the, the rules and norms that, that benefit their campaign the most. Right. But since there's even an open question, like you would think, all right, if there is a contested convention and there are rules for that, what we do is we follow the rules. Otherwise, why would there be rules? But the fact that this is an open question that has disagreement by the candidates and was thought to be legitimate enough to be asked by the moderators, and I'm sure a lot of the voters want an answer to that, where an acceptable answer might be, yes, let's not follow the rules for these reasons. Doesn't that tell you something about the weakness of the Democratic Party? It it does. And it, uh, you know, it suggests some some disturbing ways this thing can roll out. I mean, it 
And it, it would depend a lot on the situation of, you know, what actually a contested convention looks like. If you end up with, you know, say Bernie Sanders goes into it with like 45 percent of the delegates pledged to him and no one else above 20 percent, I think it's pretty obvious with which way that goes. And, you know, if you have, uh, you know, all the superdelegates can, can step in and vote on the second ballot and I think it very unlikely they would, you know, try and and quash someone with that much support. On the other hand, if you have one candidate at 45% and another at 44%, then what do they do? That could get really ugly. And it's not really obvious which way they'd go at that point. Um, The party, you know, party insiders themselves, the superdelegates, the DNC members, they haven't shown a lot of real interest in going beyond what their voters want in, in really like being seen as... Uh, picking and choosing a candidate, they seem to be, um, you know, quite reticent to do anything that that um, that smacks of even taking a side, and th- that would put them in a terrible quandary. But isn't this what parties are supposed to do? Take a side, take a stance, at least. This is normally what they've done. Yeah, um, we're uh, we seem to be very much in an era where that's uh, you know th- that's really frowned upon. The Democratic Party did that. In a, in a fairly normal fashion in 2016. You know, that is, the, you know, a lot of Democratic Party insiders for many years were considering their options and they said, you know, we, we think Hillary Clinton's the way to go. Um, we, we like what she stands for. We think she's got a good chance of winning. And they endorsed her and the party and a lot of other candidates dropped out and things happened like they normally do. The endorsed candidate got the nomination. And yet, like a, a large chunk of the party was angry at that result. They thought there was something inherently corrupt in that, even though the party was just doing the things that a party normally does. Um, So that has been one of the lessons that people within the party have taken out of that uh, election is that they should not be seen uh, taking sides. And they've sort of gone out of their way to to look neutral. Yes, but the party is there. It's like saying a referee shouldn't take a side. And it seems like most of the rules that they either allowed to be adopted or stuck with were rules that would benefit the Sanders campaign. And you understand that they're the big faction that's always upset. Then again, those very rules are what has created much of the chaos. I'm not blaming Bernie for the chaos, but their people advocated that the Iowa caucus have three different counts and those all were publicized. Well, that just leads to complexity in the system and complexity actually was one of the reasons why there's all this technical term Michigas out of Iowa. The very fact that there are caucuses, which are kind of anti-democratic and certainly not secret ballot institutions, the the, the Bernie Sanders people like caucuses. I mean, it can be seen as this uh, conflict between Bernie and the others, but at some point it's also a conflict between chaos and order with what the party should be and always has been throughout history, representing order, but now refusing to stand for order and rules and structure. I, I mean, honestly, I, I think your analysis is basically right there. Um, the DNC, uh, over the course of like 2017 and 2018, um, was really looking at a lot of these things. They, they made a lot of concessions to um, supporters of Bernie Sanders in terms of, you know, disempowering the superdelegates, at least on the first vote, in terms of changing the rules for caucuses to try and make them more transparent, um, a number of other things. Really, a lot of them went along with that, not because they necessarily agreed, but because they wanted the party to appear unified. They were concerned about ongoing divisions within the party. But I, I think you're right. What this has done is actually, um, you know, spilled out and made the party's uh, its nomination process even more confusing 
and it's it's I, I think increased the possibility for an even more divisive outcome than we saw in 2016. Yeah. And lest anyone hear this and think, oh, what I'm upset about is rules that favor Sanders, I'm not. I'm upset about lack of rules. There could have been rules that favored Sanders that were rules that everyone could live by. In fact, maybe there's two questions. I'll just stop it there. So I'll ask you that. Isn't it true that there could be rules, easy, clearly delineated rules that are perfectly fine to Sanders and we'd have a much clearer process? Yeah, well, I I mean, I think what happened is, you know, the rule changes were not extraordinary, but they um, they were very contested while they were being decided upon. But it seems like they're reasonably clear set of rules in there right now. Um, but they are ones that are not necessarily designed to get the party to, uh, you know, a, a clear and easy uh, nomination. Many of the rules adopted in recent years uh, toward more proportional delicate allocation in, in, instead of winner take all, toward, uh, you know, removing the the superdelegates first vote, uh, um, you know, all these sorts of things, simply make it, um, you know, they allow for a more competitive nomination process. And one of the things that campaigns tend to do is, you know, quite naturally is fight the last battle. That is, you know, uh, the the Sanders uh, supporters were thinking in terms of the nomination in 2016. Right. And, you know, trying to uh, enact a set of rules that would have made it easier for, um, for Sanders to have won in, in, in 2016. Now, now, none of those would have probably worked. I mean, Hillary Clinton simply had uh, more votes, more popularity. But, uh, you know, there are things that, that could have made it um, a little bit of a slower process uh, and could have made him a little more, you know, given him a bit more delegate support going into the convention. Right. So I guess I'm saying rules. I want to make it clear. Isn't it the case, Bernie Sanders and his supporters had a theory of the case that if if the states weren't winner take all, or if there weren't huge baskets of delegates to be won along the way by someone who was, you know, first past the post, that's better for him. But maybe he's wrong. I think... I think, in fact, at this point, if, and you tell me, if the rules were more like the Republican rules, more winner take all, less everyone gets a little bit, it would actually be better for Bernie right now. Right now, yes. And, uh, and that, that's interesting to think about because, you know, again, what, what people who, who worked on these rules over the last few years were probably thinking of was another type of, of battle like 2016, where it would have been Bernie against maybe Joe Biden. Um, or something like you know, a, a sort of more uh, more centrist establishment figure who would be, you know, doing a little better than Bernie in terms of popularity, but there might be some uh, some opportunities for Bernie to to make a, a serious convention fight along the way. Whereas what we're seeing right now is is at least in the terms of the polling, Bernie has been uh, the front runner recently may end up winning a fair number of state contests. And if this were more, you know republican style winner take all contests, um, he would probably have a clearer path to the nomination right now than he than he currently does. Right. And then <laughs> the superdelegate question is interesting because it seems like they punted on them. And what they did was they said, all right, we'll just take the superdelegates out of the equation unless we really need them. But that's not taking the superdelegates out of the equation, because if you really need them, what was an annoyance to the kind of candidate who thinks the superdelegates were aligned against him becomes a crisis if they're the ones to decide the race. I don't know that they actually made a good decision on that as much as they made an expedient and a having of the baby on that. 
Yeah, this was in many ways, you know, the, the, what happened with the superdelegates was in many ways a compromise position. Um, a lot of the Sanders supporters really wanted to just get rid of superdelegates altogether. You know, just say, you know, the DNC members should not have a vote. Uh, Democratic members of Congress uh, should not have, uh, you know, should not get a vote in this. And they got a lot of pushback from within the party on that, you know, particularly from members of the Congressional Black Caucus, for example, um, who, you know, were you know, a lot of African-American members in the party who have this power as delegates. And they were like, we're, we're not giving these up to um, these these young people who are fairly new to the party. Um, this is our voice. We've earned it. So you, you, it was a very divisive process. They came out of it with some sort of a compromise in which, okay, superdelegates still exist, but they don't have as much power. But um, you're absolutely right. If they were seen as potentially corrupt in 2016, you know, a certainly more corrupt appearance would be if they played no role up until the convention <laughs> and then yeah. suddenly come in. Boom. Um, <laughs> to be seen as, you know, swinging the, the, uh, the final nomination one way or the other. Now we have to remember these are, you know, for the most part, these superdelegates are elected officials. You know, they're members of Congress, they're elected DNC members, um, they're politicians. They don't want to necessarily get too far beyond their own voters. Um, they don't want to do anything that will make a lot of people angry. So, you know, the odds that, uh, they will vote heavily against what the voters in their own state said they'd wanted in the primaries and caucuses, I think are pretty low. Mm -hmm. Um, so if there's already a, you know, strong lean towards Sanders in their states, they'll, they'll probably end up going with that, but there's certainly no guarantees and it, it'll be hard to come up with a scenario that doesn't smike, uh, you know, smack someone is looking somehow corrupt. And how do the Republicans do it? They don't do these superdelegates. They allocate their delegates through a series of primaries and caucuses. M a lot of these are winner take all. And, uh, you know, so you, you tend to have a, a more rapid uh, acquisition of delegates on that side. Someone, you know, who usually the, the front runner usually clinches it sometime in like late March or early April. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they don't get off the hook because they, too, were fighting the last war and they chose a set of rules back in 2016 that was meant to essentially guard against someone like Ted Cruz. But what it did was it allowed uh, Donald Trump in because they didn't foresee him. This is the problem. Whenever you fight the last war, although it is true that armies, when, when armies go on a winning streak, they are essentially fighting the last war. But on the other hand, you always run into problems when you make a prediction about what's going to happen, enact a set of rules based on that prediction, and then the prediction doesn't come true. And by the way, in politics, the prediction often doesn't come true. I, I, I think that's right. I mean, this is a lot of what I've been writing about in, in the, the book project I'm working on, look, looking at um, you know, how Democrats are trying to decide who the nominee should be. And a lot of that is based on, again, the last war. They're like trying to figure out... Um, you know, how do you decide who's electable for 2020? Well, you look at the last election and, and they just say, OK, well, why did we lose? Why did Hillary Clinton lose? They have no idea why she lost. They are um, everyone has a different theory about why she lost. And some say it's because of just who she was and how she campaigns. Others are like, well, the campaign organization was bad or they were using bad data or maybe it was Bernie Sanders or maybe it was Russia or Jim Comey. And any one of these theories that you cling to, you know, suggests a different path forward. Maybe we should have a more mo moderate nominee or maybe a more liberal nominee or maybe a right. white male or a person of color. Or, uh, maybe we should campaign more in this part of the country or another. And, you know, th this this total lack of consensus about what went wrong last time has made it a lot harder for them to converge on a solution uh, this time around.
Thank God we didn't get out of here in a discussion about the Democratic Party without at least laying some blame at the feet of the Clintons. Thank God for that. <laughs> Seth Maskett blogs at the Mischiefs of Faction. He is director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Seth, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Good talking to you. And now the spiel. Michael Bloomberg, perhaps bound by a restrictive NDA, could not provide any information to some of the most basic questions that came his way in last night's debate. Why'd you stop and frisk? Why'd you say all those horrible things to female employees? Why won't you release the women you locked in a tower of silence like buzzcut Rapunzel's? Now, if you know about the policies, it might be tempting to say, well, the reason he couldn't defend them is that they were indefensible. Well... Michael Jordan was indefensible, but sometimes he scored 50 and sometimes he'd score 20. There are better ways and worse ways for Bloomberg to have made his case or rebutted the case of others. The worst way, that's what he actually did, which was pretty much to make no counter case at all. Take this charge. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. To which Bloomberg said nothing. He just stood there. And then when it was his turn to talk, he didn't address it. But there was a big thing he could have said. He could have been perfectly accurate and sensible. And it was a thing that doesn't absolve him. It takes a little bit of responsibility. And then he could move the conversation off to an area he'd prefer. Something like, well, those quotes you just said about me, I didn't say all the things that you're saying I said. I literally can't remember if what you're talking about, which is more than 30 years ago, I joked about Prince Andrew and the royal family. I think if I understand what the joke was trying to be and refer to, that was the reference. So in 1988 or 1989, the idea of the royal family was as foreign to me as the Lannisters or some other Game of Thrones characters are to people here in the audience. But of course, it's wrong. It's unkind. It's not how I talk now. It's not how I think now. Maybe some of you had ideas back in the 80s that you regret. Like you, Senator Warren and I, we both in the 80s supported Ronald Reagan. Anyway, Those were really bad jokes, dumb jokes, and the important thing is that I governed, I was a mayor for 12 years, and I didn't do it as a sexist, I did it as a champion of women's causes, I've given $10 million to Planned Parenthood in the US, I've given $50 million to Planned Parenthood Global, where we support women's reproductive health in Nicaragua and Senegal and Uganda, so again, bad words, I don't live a life reflective of those words, and I've never governed in a sexist way, all right? It's a little better, right? Now, you might be saying that's fine for the horse face portion of the beatdown that we saw. But what about the NDA part? The mayor has to stand on his record. And what we need to know is exactly what's lurking out there. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? We have a very few non-disclosure agreements. How how many is that? Let me finish. How many is that? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put, and let me put, there's agreements between two parties that wanted to keep it quiet. And that's up to them. They sign those agreements and we'll live with it. So wait, when you say it is up to, I just want to be clear. Some is how many?
Blink, blink, blink. No answer. And when you and when you say they signed them and they wanted them, if they wish now to speak out and tell their side of the story about what it is they allege, that's now okay with you. You're releasing them on television tonight. He could have said no, because that's a stunt. What the NDA is, is a legal contract, and I honor legal contracts, unlike some people. And these women, by the way, and I think this is true. Um, this is me, Mike Pasca, talking, but it's standard. These women, by the way, get from me a non-disparagement clause, which is my consideration in this legal contract, and they shouldn't be asked to release me from that. When you run a company of, now it's 20,000 people, you're going to have HR situations. People will be fired. People will be denied promotions. People will say that's not fair. Other people say it is fair. Some may be right. Some may be wrong. I mean, I've been in business for 30 years. I've made billions of dollars. I've paid billions of dollars to this country and taxes. I admit that I have probably made some bad personnel decisions along the way, or people under me who ultimately report to me made some decisions that other employees thought were unfair. The point is, I was mayor for 12 years. I did not govern in a sexist way. I had a deputy female commissioner. 40% of my women were commissioners. The American people need a smart leader yesterday, not a perfect leader 25 years ago. That was probably too long from the time he got, but some version of that would have been better than just, you know, blinking and stuttering. Then on stop and frisk. Oh my God, he was awful on this. His performance smacks of someone who took the advice, okay, I'm going to ask for forgiveness. But having had no experience asking for forgiveness in his life, none that I know of, it came off really bad. Let's play some of that. I've sat, I've apologized, I've asked for forgiveness, but the bottom line is that we stopped too many people, but the policy, we stopped too many people, and we've got to make sure that we do something about criminal justice in this country. There is no great answer to a lot of these problems, and if we took off everybody that was wrong on this, off this panel, everybody that was wrong on criminal justice at some time in their careers, there'd be nobody else up here. So the way to talk about this is the way he has talked about it in the past, not on the stage last night. I personally can't fathom why the phrase 40% decline in incarceration wasn't peppered into that response and several others. And he did bring down the murder rate in New York. He could have emphasized how driven he was on an emotional level to save the lives of the people he actually did wind up saving. It's not his stock and trade to be emotional, but I've seen him try that. And in different settings, it comes across better. Also, we should note the 95% decline stat, he said, is misleading. So that's some of what I would have said. Would it have helped? Let's just say it wouldn't have hurt so much. And in these areas, Bloomberg really does have a bad record. Not bad by the sensitivities of today, but stop and frisk, his language in the workplace, and even Muslim surveillance, which they didn't get into, that was just bad. But I do believe a lot of his other ideas would be very appealing to Democrats and large swaths of independents and Republicans. And through better, more thought-out answers, more aggressive answers, Bloomberg could have at least stanched some of the bloodletting there on stage. In 2016, the other Republicans, for the most part, were hands-off on Donald Trump, but then eventually they came at him. And what he did was he gave as good as he got. He didn't do it with facts. He didn't do it with kindness. He didn't do it by acting within the proper bounds of how people are supposed to act. But, uh, you know, he often did it with fury. But at least he gave the impression to voters that he was standing up for himself, meaning a Trump-curious voter 
might conclude, oh, with that passion, he'll stand up for me. A stupid thing to conclude. But if what you're doing up there is just taking the shots and not saying anything and offering horrible defenses, how can a voter see in you a champion for himself or herself? Defenselessness was the overall impression that Bloomberg gave. It's a little bit different from indefensible, but it's not so different in the conclusion that it will lead voters to if some drastically different tactics aren't taken soon. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She once insulted Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands in the early aughts, better not mentioned. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, has done important work for the Wiccan community. By that, I mean he's watched all of Buffy. The GIST. Let's be real. The president of Mexico probably couldn't name Amy Klobuchar either. Umpur de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>